This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcasts every Sunday, subscribe, and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is Michelle King, author of The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work. She's interviewed by author and former USA Today editor-in-chief, Joanne Lippman. Welcome, Michelle King, author of The Fix. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. This is such an important book uh, because it's not just about the problems that women face in the workplace. It's so focused on solutions. And I love your key insight, which is that we tend to give advice to women. There's lots of books and conferences for women telling them what they need to do and how they need to change. We need to lean in. We need to negotiate more. And if we're too nice, we'll never get the corner office. But what you point out is the truth is that women actually don't need fixing. We're not the ones that are broken. What's broken is the workplace. And, you know, as we know, workplaces were designed by men, for men. When women try to act like men, it has not worked out very well for us. And I love how you put it. You say, we need to call a time out on the women fixing epidemic. Um, And as you point out, of course, Michelle, gender equality, it's not just about women. Your book, The Fix, is not just for women. It actually is about all of us. It's for all of us. It's about making our workplaces work better for everyone. So thank you, welcome. Um, And your book provides a guide. So why don't we like dive right in here? I'm very interested, if you could share with us, what is your own background that brought you to this place to write The Fix? You know, it's so funny, I've been researching this for for many years, looking at why women aren't advancing at the same rate as men and really trying to understand that issue. And when I started out, you know, many, many years ago, it was when the Lean In, so the Lean In book by Sheryl Sandberg was very popular, right? And that's sort of firmly rooted in what I call fix the women's solutions. So we were asking women to do more or be more to fit into sort of established systems of work that quite frankly, don't really value them, right? And so when I was researching it, I sort of sat firmly in that camp and was looking at what women needed to do differently to advance at work and why women weren't advancing. And very quickly in reviewing all the literature, I found that actually, you know, women are exceptional in terms of their leadership capability, their networking capability, um, you know, problem solving, just how they engage as managers, as employees. And a lot of that was new to me. I didn't know that. You know, if you just take networking as an example, women are often told to attend networking programs and learn how to network. And, you know, there's this perception that women don't do that well because they don't have the same access as men. Um, And that's a great example of how workplaces are broken, where, you know, simply because women don't have the same access, we put the onus on women to solve it rather than really digging deep to understand what the problem is and why women are excluded from networks, or even when they have access, they don't benefit from the same way as men. So very quickly, my research found that actually, you know, women have everything they need to succeed and then some. The issue is more that workplaces were basically designed by and for 
an ideal type of worker, which tends to be sort of a dominant, um, assertive, aggressive, heterosexual, able-bodied white male. And the problem is, you know, most women don't fit that ideal or what I call the prototype. It's my Don Draper from Mad Men, you know, that prototype. Um, and so in trying to fit that prototype, it creates a lot of challenges for women, you know, when we fix them. But equally, the thing that's really interesting, the research, is that I found that this prototype doesn't really work for men. So living up to it, men face a lot of challenges. And so my book really outlines how this prototype creates what I call cultures of inequality, where everybody's trying to live up to this ideal standard that actually serves nobody. And what we need is the freedom to be ourselves at work and to be valued for that. And we need workplaces that really are designed for difference, you know, quite the opposite of what we have today. So tell me a little bit about your own background that led you to this interest in the first place. If, uh, you're with Netflix right now, and previously you were with the United Nations. T explain how you got interested in this topic. I think, you know, I've been working in human resources for most of my career in a lot of different countries, a lot of different contexts and, and sort of environments and sectors. And what I found consistently was um, gender inequality across these different environments and I became increasingly interested in how workplaces weren't really designed for difference so my work in diversity and inclusion even in human resources really led me to want to understand this issue and so it's something that as a practitioner I've been looking at for sort of the last 17 years but also as a researcher so across the various sort of qualifications I have I've really been trying to understand you know what it is about workplaces that don't really sort of um, support everybody to succeed in an equal way and so in researching this you know it, it became apparent to me over the years through my practitioner work but also through my research that you know there are solutions out there there are ways that we can fix this. And so for me, it's really about trying to share that with everybody, make it accessible, make everybody understand that actually, you know, when it comes to equality and inclusion and equity, it really is um, all of our jobs. And so that's really what I've been trying to share this message, you know, through, through my own work as a researcher, but also as a practitioner. And I'm really glad you brought up the point about how much research you've done, because what you found, as you, you talk about a lot, uh, that so much of the conventional wisdom about women is just wrong. And you, you've just referenced a few points. Are there other areas that, that you know, the conventional wisdom, wisdom says that women act in a certain way that is incorrect? Yeah, I mean, I think across the board, you know, if we're asking women um, to do something that we're not asking men to, we need to really think about it. You know, when it comes to sort of lean in, I think that book was written in a time and place where people really wanted solutions. You know, people like the idea that they alone can sort of overcome inequality that they have no hand in creating, um, even though the, that logic's quite flawed. And so for me, the problem is, you know, is how do you say to people, you can do everything just right, you can get the quality qualifications, you can have the experience, you can get the performance ratings and still not succeed because success discriminates because workplaces weren't designed for difference, right? They're designed to support sort of this ideal to advance and people that most closely fit that ideal standard are more likely to advance in organizations. So the more you differ from it, you know, the more challenges you're going to face. And that's not something that we talk about that, you know, organizations are inherently set up for sort of this ideal prototype to succeed. And that creates a lot of challenges for anybody who might differ from the Don Draper ideal, right? And so I think the aim is to really think about with all the women fixing solutions that we have, firstly, is it something that we're asking men to do? 
Secondly, do any of these solutions work? Because a lot of them don't. So if we just take, for example, the idea that women don't ask for pay rises, right, and that that's what's led to the pay gap, you know, there's a great HBR study that shows that actually that's not the case, that women ask for pay rises just as much as men. They're just 25% less likely to get them. And part of the reason for that is just pure discrimination. But also, you know, women are penalized when they do ask for raises because they're asserting themselves, right? They're defying the standard society holds for what good looks like for women, which is to be meek, mild and unassuming and almost thankful that you have a job. And so when women come in there, you know, asking, knowing their value and asking for what they're worth, you know, they're penalized because they seem to be sort of asserting themselves and displaying, you know, what we inherently associate with more masculine Don Draper attributes. And so for me, the aim is, you know, to really try and look at if we have these solutions, number one, it's unfair to ask women to do things to fit into a work environment that maybe will never really value them. And number two, you know, to really look at the solutions and say, do they work? And in most cases, they don't because they're not addressing the underlying system of inequality, which is really, you know, the policies, the processes, the practices in terms of day-to-day behaviors and some of the personal beliefs that leaders and employees have that really, you know, value people differently and, and value men more than women. And that's what creates inequality in workplaces. Right, right. And, and I know of other research I think you cite in your book that talks about when women speak more than men in a business setting, they're, they're essentially penalized for it. We think less of them. Whereas when men speak more in that same setting, we think more of them. We reward them for that. And it does seem like there's this double standard in a variety of ways that you point to. Um, and in fact, that's in your, the, the, it's actually the subtitle of the book. You talk about overcome the invisible barriers. Uh, that are holding women back at work. Are there other sorts of invisible barriers that we should be thinking about and recognizing? Well, I mean, you just touched on one right there, right, which is the conformity bind. It's something that women encounter very early on in their careers where they have to kind of live up to the Don Draper ideal or that standard, right, that masculine ideal standard in terms of not just how they look, right, so the white, middle-class, able-bodied male, but importantly, sort of engage in the behaviours associated with what good looks like, so be dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive. And those behaviours are traditionally associated with masculinity. So when women engage in those behaviours at work, they might be seen as competent but they're not likable because to be likable you have to engage in behaviors we more typically associate with femininity right for women when they defy the standard of what good looks like for women which is being meek mild unassuming maternal you know they are they are really going to be disliked so women face this trade-off at work where they have to engage in these behaviors that are don draper like to be competent but then when they engage in sort of more feminine behaviors um to be likable they're not seen as competent so it's this trade-off between likability and competence and it creates a lot of challenges for women early on in terms of you know their capability or perceptions of their capability you know their opportunities for promotion and advancement um their access to sort of pay and rewards so we see that really playing out early on this double bind I would say, you know, one of the big challenges that, and it's the whole reason I wrote this book, is that we're often in denial about the challenges that women face at work. You know, it's something I discovered in my own research that people assume workplaces are meritocracies. 
there's this belief that you know everybody is the same because everybody's treated in the same way and so people don't have different experiences of work and with that kind of logic you know we're not only denying um, difference but we're denying inequality and it makes it really hard to solve and so what I always say to women is the very first barrier you're going to encounter when you leave school and enter your workplace is conditioned expectations you know we're conditioned to believe that working life will function like school life and that it is a meritocracy and that we'll be rewarded for our efforts and as I said before you know success discriminates and so you know you can do everything right and still not advance because you don't fit the prototype and you're sort of having to juggle things like the conformity bind to try and fit in so the best thing people can do is really arm themselves with awareness of how workplaces don't work for everybody in the same way and then how you navigate that but most importantly sort of how we change workplaces to effectively you know accommodate difference and and work for everybody. Yes, because, you know, I was so interested in how throughout the book, you, you, it brings home how um, really the male is the default. And you talk about the Don Draper, the white male. Uh, that's kind of the default, which means that women or anyone who doesn't conform to that, we are necessarily the other. And it really came out, uh, you have a passage in the book where you talk um, about how if things like child care benefits, parental leave, flex time, if we were actually creating a workforce from scratch right now for all of us, all of those things would be built in to the workplace. But because women are the other and uh, the workplace didn't start with women in mind, all of those things are now seen as benefits. And your point is they shouldn't be benefits, they should be part of the fabric of work. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, so I just want to touch on something you said sort of at the start of that, which is, you know, for me, I think one of the things we don't talk enough about is how you have this default standard. And it's something I assumed as well. So I was in denial about the challenges that men face. And I assumed that the standards sort of work for them. And it doesn't, right? So it actually works for a very small number of people. And even then, it's not without its cost. So living up to Don, um, you know, requires, for example, that men don't share sort of their life outside of work and don't talk about having to balance, you know, fatherhood and working life. And that men are silenced um, by the need to sort of conform or live up to the ideal standards. So they engage in some of those behaviours that can be exclusionary or they have to sort of tolerate those behaviours even if it makes them uncomfortable. So there's a lot of challenges that men encounter in living up to the ideal and I think that's really important because when it comes to motherhood, you know, there is this perception and drives me crazy that this is sort of a woman problem, right? And so it's just how it's framed, it's how we even approach it, even the term motherhood when we're talking about it at work. It's not sort of, hey, how do we make workplaces work for parents? It's really, okay, so how do we sort of, what do we need to apply to help women fit into this work environment? And the reality is you're not helping me. Um, you know, the workplace wasn't designed for me in the first place. This is actually fixing something that was originally broken. And workplaces need women. You know, I don't think we talk about that enough. Women deserve workplaces that value them. And we need, you know, workplaces need us. We have capabilities that, you know, effectively they need. And if you look at, you know, there's a great study by the federal... Um, Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which found over a 30-year period the most productive workers are mothers, and specifically mothers of two. And, you know, so it's no surprise to mothers because we know what it takes to juggle all of this. But I think people are often shocked when you say that because, you know, if workplaces really wanted the most productive workers, they would design for that. And so for me, it's less about 
slapping on a flexible work policy or you know providing some parental leave which in the United States is a huge issue those are sort of what I consider the bare sort of basics that women are entitled to and women need in order to work in workplaces but so do men right so men need the opportunity to look after their children and stay at home and engage in flexible work but you can have all of those policies in place and studies show you know they're still not effective and the reason for that is culture so all of my work the whole book talks about culture which is the lived experience of workplaces so if you think of your day-to-day moments right if your boss is sitting there saying you know what it's really hard to advance mothers who are on a reduced schedule or we're going to you know demote you to this sort of lower level role because you're on a reduced work schedule you know that's those are all sort of invisible barriers that really prevent women from advancing it's something called the part-time p- penalty you know where employees who reduce their work hours and work part-time have less access to sort of long-term career opportunities and overwhelmingly that's women you know two-thirds of all part-time workers are women and so the challenge is that inequality creates really shows up in those day-to-day moments it's not you know policies and processes are required but if we have leaders who are leading and who are managing sort of the challenges and considering the whole person and your identities outside of work and how best to design a work environment to meet those needs you know that would sort of do away with the need to have a lot of these policies and to date we just don't have that we don't have leaders who are leading or creating environments that are equitable to both men and women in terms of sort of the whole person and and what they need are outside of work. That Fed study, I hadn't been aware of it, but I could have told you that. As someone who has hired hundreds of people in my time um, as an editor-in-chief, but also as a mom of two, I totally believe mothers are so productive and mothers of two. Mm. I have two kids. Um, Not surprised at all. Uh, But, you know, let's talk about, though, what the solutions here, you've talked about culture change, but also about leadership. What is the balance to get to the right place in the workplace? Do we need a change, a legislative change? Do we, is it just all about culture change? Uh, do we need new laws? What, what is the right balance here to get to the place we need to get to? So look, I talk about this a lot in the book in terms of, you know, equality is really comes down to leadership. I believe it's an invitation for leaders to lead. And the reason I say that is because, you know, leaders set the standard for what good looks like when it comes to behaviors. Employees live up to that standard by modeling leadership And so when we think about what good looks like, we're looking at our leaders. And many of those leaders today are in denial about the challenges that women face and most underrepresented groups in organizations, right? And if leaders don't understand the barriers that women face, then they're not taking steps to remove those barriers. And most barriers happen, as I mentioned before, in day-to-day moments, right? It's when a woman gets spoken over in a meeting or when there's a sexist comment or, you know, some office banter that excludes or marginalizes employees at work. So those are the moments that we need leaders to manage. And, you know, outside of legislation, which I don't really cover in my book, because for me, I'm really looking at workplaces, right, and how leaders can take action today and what it is they can do today. And for me, just simply managing those moments is something that every leader can do. You know, so when you see discrimination, when you see marginalization, when you see exclusion, it's your opportunity to pull employees aside, talk about it, and use it as a learning moment and really resetting the standards for behaviors and organizations. The challenge is to do that well 
we need leaders to know what the barriers are so they know what to pay attention to they know what to look out to and in order to know what the barriers are which you know and I recommend reading my book is you know to do that you actually have to disrupt your own denial right you have to think about hey as a leader how am I in a position of privilege how do I fit Don whether that's being having a whiteness in common with Don that makes it that much easier for you to advance if if you're a woman you know a white woman in a leadership role you need to consider that and understand the barriers that women of color face in organizations but if you're a man you know it's both your you, you've got your masculinity in common and then also sort of your whiteness or your middle classness or your ableism so you need to think about um, you know how you what you have in common with Don makes it that much easier for you to advance and the thing here is that's important to mention is that nobody's saying you know Don Draper type leaders haven't had to work hard to get where they have we're just saying everybody else has to work hard too but they also have to overcome numerous invisible barriers I mean my book outlines 17 and so that's really what we want leaders to do is sort of start the process of becoming aware disrupt your denial understand your privilege understand how that makes it that much harder for anybody else to advance get to know the barriers and then manage those moments every day so much of what you're talking about is unconscious bias, right? And then some of it is outright bias when you're talking about these, these barriers. Can, can you enumerate, you mentioned the 17 barriers. Can you, can you talk about a few that we haven't hit on? Sure. I mean, the thing I'll say uh, just on the unconscious bias thing to point out is, you know, I'm not a massive fan of unconscious bias training. And I think this is an important point when it comes to the barriers because, you know, research shows that, in fact, a lot of unconscious bias training is ineffective because the reason is, is you're raising people's awareness and then you're telling them that it's unconscious. And so they feel they don't have to do anything about it. And there's another great HBR study that talks to this. And, you know, research by my university has now found that actually what we need to do is shift people from unconscious bias training to conscious decision making. And that's exactly what my book tries to do by outlining the barriers. So sort of really showing how the invisible barrier shows up and then what you can do to navigate it or remove it or, you know, prevent that from happening again. And so we've got some great examples as we go through the book, you know, things that I mentioned before, like simply, you know, not being aware. So having sort of those conditioned expectations when you start work. So what can you do around that? You know, arm all women entering the workforce with awareness. Because what we find is without that, you know, within the first three years of working life, women's confidence drops by more than 60% in terms of their ability to reach sort of senior leadership positions. And their perceptions of fit, so how much they feel like they fit into their organization, drops by more than 40%. Now, that's a lot, you know, and that takes a toll. And the reason for that is simply not knowing the challenge you're going to encounter can really knock your confidence when you do encounter them because you start to think, you know, is it me or is it my workplace? And you, you really sort of grapple with a sense that maybe I don't fit in here. Maybe I'm not cut out for corporate life. And so those are some of the challenges we see early on. Also things like, you know, as I mentioned, the conformity bind or challenges with performance tax. So, you know, because women sort of intuitively don't fit the Don Draper prototype, right, just in terms of their behaviors, but then also just how they look, you know, women have to work that much harder to be seen as competent or capable. So we're almost starting on the back foot. So we have to overperform to be seen as just as good as our male colleagues. And that can create a lot of challenges. And then, you know, as you approach sort of motherhood, you're seeing a whole bunch of challenges with workplaces that are not designed for mothers. And one of the key reasons for that is that, you know, you, the, you can sort of really differ from Don when you become a mother, right? It's probably the most 
most furthest away from that prototype that you can be. And it's something that physically we see. And, and, and that's why, you know, pregnant women really try to hide their pregnancy at work. They also will go into work when they're not feeling well. Um, you know, I've got a great story around a colleague who was given lean in when she was four months pregnant and told by her boss that now because she was pregnant, she was seen as less capable and less competent. So she needed to really prove herself and lean in even further. And so what happened was she was already performing at a high rate. She did even more work and she got signed off for, you know, basically overworking by her doctor saying that, you know, it was damaging her health and putting her baby at risk. And so we see, you know, this is the whole tax around motherhood, something called the motherhood tax. And a lot of people may be familiar with the motherhood penalty. And it plays out where, again, women's performance is questioned simply because they don't look like the prototype and people have a lot of stereotypes they associate with mothers. And so we see that really play out in terms of a reduction in wages. So it's estimated that mothers, you know, after controlling for all the usual factors that affect wages, will face a 5% reduction in wages um, per child. And we really see that play out. And it's ironic, you know, we're penalizing our most productive workforce, which is crazy. So, you know, those are challenges mothers experience. And then as you move to what I see is really the last phase of women's careers when women are leaders, one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, we often are unaware of the challenges women leaders face. It's assumed that once you've broken through that glass ceiling, you know, you've overcome all the barriers, right? And that's just simply not the case. You know, women are hyper-visible when they're leading because every day they have to go into a workplace and defy the standard for what leadership looks like, right? And so they face numerous challenges like backlash, um, you know, where they're undermined or they have their capability and authority questioned or where people sort of don't support their leadership decisions. And then we also see it play out with things like what I call stereotypical typecasting, right, where we label women leaders like, you know, we see them as ice queen or you know, we give them those sorts of terms and then it makes it very hard for them to lead in a way that isn't associated with that. So I think it's really important to understand that all the different challenges that women face throughout their careers. And for women, I say, hey, you know, when you're reading this book, it's helpful. It's a bit of a roadmap, right? And you can sort of see yourself in some of the past experiences and then see yourself in the future and, you know, some of the barriers that might be coming up for you. And it really helps, um, you know, I think awareness is key because it helps prevent that internalizing process that we talked about before that seems to knock confidence. And I think it's very important that you've broken down these invisible barriers because, you know, when we talk about gender inequality, especially in the past couple of years, there's been this focus on, on Me Too and the worst cases of sexual harassment. But the fact is that when women do get together and have these conversations amongst ourselves, um, it's, it's in general, it's these more, it's these smaller, these more invisible barriers that we're talking about. I know, you know, in interruptions, women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are interrupted. Um, the, the, each one of these barriers that you talk about is all backed up by research. And, uh, and, but these are the things that, you know, being talked over, being, uh, ignored, being, um, belittled in a way, um, you know, being left out of the, of the conversation, being, being, uh, ignored in that sort of meeting before the meeting when the guys are all talking about last night's game. All of these, um, you know, lesser, they're not, they're, these are not sort of that outright sexism, uh, that we saw. 30, 40 years ago, but, but you add up all of these invisible barriers and it leads to, um, as you say, this lack of opportunity and recognition for women in a workplace that is not working 
for women. I want to ask you, though, something about um, quotas, because there are a number of people, and there's a number of other countries where they have instituted quotas for women on boards. Uh, you have fairly strong feelings about that. Why don't you explain? You know, it's so funny because people love quotas and I, I always sort of feel the need to apologise before I get asked this question because it's a bit of a rant. Um, I, I never used to have a strong opinion about quotas, just full transparency. And then, um, you know, it was in researching the challenges that women experienced and also men, um, or men's experiences of inequality, that I came to realise the damage that quotas do. And the reason I'm really opposed to them is because for a lot of organizations, this is the go-to solution. So the go-to solution is to mandate a certain percentage of women in leadership positions or cut, copy, and paste women into leadership positions and then hold women accountable for fixing um, you know, inequality or cultures of inequality that they themselves have no hand in creating. And so we see that happen all the time. And the reason it's really damaging is when you, well, when I interviewed women and men in two different organizations as part of um, my PhD research, I really found, you know, the barriers that were sort of compounded through quotas. So what we see is, you know, when women, women already have their legitimacy called into question, right? Because they don't fit the prototype. So it's assumed that women are less competent and capable. So women have to work that much harder. But when you cut, copy and paste a woman into a leadership position, she's seen as having got that role simply because, you know, the organization now has diversity and inclusion quotas. And so instantly, everybody questions her capability. Everybody calls into, you know, um, question her legitimacy to be in that role. She faces tremendous backlash day to day. And not only that, psychologically, it's very damaging to women because they question themselves. They question whether they truly are ready for that role. And, you know, this plays out then with men where something else I found is that, you know, the number one barrier to men's advancement in organizations, according to men, is the advancement of women because of diversity and inclusion initiatives that simply focus on women. And so for me, quotas in many ways are the ultimate fix the woman solution. You know, there's this idea that we're just going to advance women into these positions and this whole problem will be solved. And I, I would be fine with that if it was true, even given the cost, because I have women say to me, Michelle, you know, we just need quotas. It's the only way we're going to fix the environment. Some of our leaders are never going to get it. But the reality is quotas don't work. And that's not something that we talk about a lot. So you see the lack of sustainability in cut, copy, paste solutions. So when you put a woman into a leadership role, there's something called implicit quotas, where simply having a woman in a leadership role makes you 50% less likely to hire another woman. We've also found, you know, when women are CEOs, they're 45% more likely to be dismissed regardless of the firm's performance. And they are sort of, I think, around 60% more likely to be replaced by a white male. So, you know, this idea that simply putting women into leadership positions is somehow going to solve the problem is simply not true. And my main issue is they don't work. So not only are they damaging, but they don't work. They're not sustainable. So for me, this is less about looking at what I see is really the scoreboard. So, you know, representation and more about looking at creating cultures of equality. You know, research finds in environments where employees feel like they can be themselves at work and be valued for that, which is known as cultures of equality. You know, women are six times more likely to advance to senior leadership positions and men are twice as likely. And you 
might say, well, how can that be? But that's because, you know, we're no longer advancing a small number of people that fit this Don Draper ideal, right? Everybody's got an opportunity to make it. And in these environments, importantly, you know, and something we haven't touched on is that employees are six times more likely to innovate. And innovation is critical to the future world of work. So this is less about, you know, how do we get a quick fix and make our company look like we've got some sort of gender representation and leadership positions and more about understanding why is it that you don't have that now and what is it about your environment that actually doesn't support women to advance. So for me, it's, it's about taking a long-term approach to this, a long-term commitment to fixing your workplace. Let's just unpack that for a moment. Uh, this is something that I do a lot of uh, work with corporations on gender equality and very often the senior male leadership will say to me, um, we really want more women in senior leadership. We just can't find them. And what I always say to them, and I, this jives with your research, what I always say is, look at your entry level, right? If your entry level is 50-50 uh, and your leadership is, you know, 80, 90 percent male, you're losing these women, and it's, it's not that they all want to go off and have babies, right? You're le you are losing them. You need to look at every single level and see where the leakage is and then see where the problem is with the organization. And I think that, that what you're talking about, you know, it does, it leads to the, the more innovation. It leads to um, more women being promoted. And so, so it, it, it's kind of all kind of comes around to that success being a long-term proposition. But what I also kind of love about what you're talking about here is that that long-term, yes, it's a number of years, but it's not a generation, right? If you look at a law firm, a consulting firm, um, you know, a business where you're bringing people in at the entry level, within seven or eight years, those entry-level people can become senior people, right? So, yeah. um, yeah, so I mean, let's I, talk about, you know, to, mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Nope, you go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, to that point about leaders saying we can't find them, I get told that all the time, right? I've worked in the energy and resource sector and manufacturing and tech. So that is something I get told all the time. And what I'll say to that is, you know, organizations that do this well in terms of getting women leaders into, into their organization Firstly, have the right environment so it's easier for them to attract women into into their organization. You know, women know. Women are smart. We look at sort of, um, you know, lists like Fairy Godboss that give you the ranking of the most equal sort of work environments and the best cultures for women, the best environments for women. We know the organizations that support us. And so, you know, those are the organizations that are going to attract the best talent when it comes to women and all underrepresented groups, right? And so for me, you've got to create the right conditions for women to be successful. And so that's really important as a starting point. But secondly, when leaders say we can't find women, what they're really saying is they can't. And the reason I say that is, you know, how many leaders have exposure to underrepresented groups in terms of qualified, able candidates? You know, you can simply host an event and expose yourself to a broad range of you know, qualified, capable black women, white women, you know, women from sort of Hispanic women, LGBTQ um, representatives from, you know, a range of different sectors and, and, you know, really trying to expose yourself to different 
and ensure that you understand that, you know, this capability does exist out there. It's just that you've not been exposed to it. And what we find is when leaders build up networks that are diverse, when it comes time to hiring, you know, a, a leader, they know capable, qualified candidates. And that's something that every single leader in organizations can do today. You know, you can actively seek out within your organization or even externally, women that you can mentor, coach, and groom ideally to take your role when you leave. And it's not to say they will get it in a tokenistic sort of quota base. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's really about finding qualified, capable, highly experienced candidates. And the same way that men support men to advance into leadership positions is something that men need to do for underrepresented groups. And so I really see this playing out in organizations where it's kind of lazy to just say we can't find them. No, it's actually because you're not exposed to them we exist, trust me, we're out there. It's just, you know, you've not reached out. You've not made it your mission to develop a diverse network. And that is something that is just factually sort of true, right? Men just don't have diverse networks. Most of it is homogeneous. We see, you know, they just don't have the exposure to qualified, capable, diverse candidates. So that's something I think every leader needs to take ownership of. Right, and it's not just women, it's underrepresented groups, which I think is a very key point. You also talk a lot, actually, in the book, and, and perhaps you can expand for, for our viewers here, about intersectional sexism and bias. If you could perhaps explain what that is and how that plays out. So I'm so passionate about this, and I talk about it in the book, particularly as a you know, white South African, which is where I grew up. And I, you know, for me, I've had to check my own privilege. I've had to understand how being a white woman, it's that much easier for me to advance in organizations compared to um, women of color or women you know, from different racial and ethnic minority groups um, because they're not a uniform group and that's an important point. Um, so specifically in the book, For Every Barrier, I talk about how difference compounds the challenges, right? So as I said before, you know, the more ways you differ from Don Draper, the more barriers you're going to face at work. And what's really important for me is that, you know, when we think about women and how women support women at work or how women don't support women by living up to the Don Draper prototype and engaging in some of those exclusionary behaviors, it's really important that, you know, what women want from men in organizations, they have to be prepared to give to women of color. So when what white women, sorry, want from men in organizations, they have to be prepared to give to women of color. And that is, you know, to know what the barriers are, to know how their lack of awareness and action actually creates the barriers and how, you know, they have a role to play in removing those barriers. And so we see this all the time, you know, when it comes to sort of racism and gender, you get this sort of mix of gendered racism, right? And it's a whole new experience of inequality in organizations. You know, something simple as speaking up for white woman, you might be defying sort of the standard for what good looks like for, for women generally, right? Femininity in terms of asserting yourself and speaking up and being more dominant. But for black women, they have to overcome both racism and sexism and then that interplay of the two, right? So one of the stereotypes out there for black women to overcome in workplaces is the angry black woman stereotype. So when they speak up, it's much more noticed and it's much more sort of heavily penalized, right? Or policed because they have to really think about 
you know, am I activating both a gender stereotype and a race stereotype? Am I going to be seen, you know, automatically as the angry black woman, even if I'm just asserting myself in a sort of standard way? And so they carry this double burden. And the problem is, is that creates a much heavier load um, emotionally and mentally to, to carry, right, in terms of navigating work environments that really aren't designed for difference. So for me, this starts with women. I think every single one of us can make it our mission to not only understand the barriers and how they've shown up for us, but to understand the barriers in terms of how they show up for all areas of difference, but particularly when it comes to race. Because, you know, I talk about it in the book that if you look at the history of feminism, you know, feminism was stolen a long time ago by white women. You know, white women liberationists were not interested in advancing the needs of all women. It was very much white women. And you see that with books like Lean In, you know, where when we're advancing women, the women that are most likely to advance in organizations are white women because they have their whiteness in common with the prototype. And even if you look at sort of the distribution of women in leadership positions today, you know, that supports that claim. And so it's really important that we think about how are we creating environments that support everybody to advance? Because ultimately, you know, this this whole setup with this prototype doesn't really work for anybody. It's less about having organizations that are designed for one particular prototype and much more about creating organizations that are designed around values like kindness or empathy or, you know, innovation and creativity and then giving people different ways to engage in behaviors. You know, I'm not saying that all masculinity is bad and all femininity is good. That's not what I'm saying. There might be perfectly appropriate sort of situations to engage in masculine behaviors. But this is about giving both men and women the freedom to engage in a wide range of behaviors to be as effective as possible. And that is something that we really need with some of the technological advancements like AI and robotics that are coming our way that are really going to transform the way our workplaces work. Can you, though, talk a little bit about, because you mentioned this in the book, and I'd love for you to give us some specifics. You say you really need, those of us who are white, need to spend our white privilege. What does that mean? What does that actually look like? Yeah, so, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in the book because I think it's... Um, it's really important. The key to this is allyship, right? So when you know what your privilege is, so in my case, it's my whiteness, right? I know that even though it's hard for me, it's that much harder for for women of color, just as an example. So I can make it my mission to find capable, experienced, qualified, um, you know, women from underrepresented racial and ethnic minority groups and support them, mentor them, coach them and groom them to take my role one day and have them perfectly positioned to advance into my role when I leave. And that's exactly what I'm asking men to do, um, you know, across the board. And so you can play it forward in that way. I think the key is, you know, also knowing what the barriers are and how they play out differently. So exactly like I talked about with the angry black woman stereotype, right? So when that plays out, I know that if in passing, if a, if a black woman in a meeting asserts herself and people sort of frown or people sort of step back or go quiet, you know, that's my opportunity to lean in and amplify, you know, her message and support her as her ally. And, and knowing that she's probably going to be penalized for speaking up. And so that's really what it's about, is once you know what the barriers are that people are most likely to encounter, you know where you can play a role to either amplify their message or support them. The one thing I will say, though, is it's very important in this work when you're spending your privilege, right, by either calling out sexist behaviors or amplifying messages or advocating for your colleagues or even making them aware of that it's not them, it's their workplace and this is a barrier, right? When you're doing all of that, 
that. It's really important not to approach it from the position of, I'm helping you. Because we see that a lot in current sort of gender equality efforts, particularly with men, right? When they advocate, it's seen as, well, I'm helping the sort of disadvantaged group. And that's simply not the case. You know, research finds that simply witnessing um, discrimination, marginalization, some of those inequality moments that I talked about, you know, the day-to-day sort of sexist, negative sort of comments, when you, when you witness that, it has the same negative or detrimental impact in terms of your mental and emotional well-being as if you'd experienced it yourself. And that's because most people don't like to watch their colleagues being discriminated against or marginalized. It creates what we call sort of a hostile work environment. So this is very much about creating work environments that work for everybody. And, you know, you feel better when you're an ally. You, you, you have a better work environment. You're more likely to advance in that sort of environment. So it's actually for your benefit. And I think that's the key to this, is really realizing that creating cultures of equality is not only everybody's job, but it actually serves to benefit everybody. But, you know, you make this, this point that you don't want to appear to be, let's say, patronizing, right? You, you don't want to look like you are trying to help someone who may not actually want your help. So what, what's the right way to do this? Is this to have a conversation privately with a person? I mean, how do you support them in a way um, that works for everyone? I think you've got to do the work. So I always say this, you know, I don't, I don't need men to help me because I'm very competent and capable just as I am, right? I, I know the research. I need men to remove the barriers that they create to my advancement. So, for example, negative gender norms is a, is, a, is a label that I've given to one of the key barriers women face, which is day-to-day discrimination and marginalization. So let me give you an example. You know, when I was a manager, on my very first day, I walked into the kitchen at work and my boss picked up a tea towel and he threw it at me and he said, Michelle, you're a woman. Why don't you wash the dishes? And I was the only manager on, on that team who was, who was a female. And all the men who reported to me were standing around the kitchen, and none of them said anything. And in that moment, you know, I had a choice. Like, I could either stick up for myself and my gender, which is a pretty core part of my identity, or, you know, I could sort of play along, but then I'd be mocking a core part of who I am, right? And so I just turned to him and I said, you know what, you've got two hands, why don't you wash the dishes yourself? And in that moment, he said, you know, this is why I hate working with women, because they can't take a joke. And so that was my very first day as a manager, and that's an example of a negative gender norm, where it's, it's you know, this, this, this underlying joking or underlying banter or underlying day-to-day sort of drip, drip, drip of these moments that add up. And it does. It makes you question your legitimacy. It makes you question whether you fit into the organization. You know, research actually talks to it like somebody's humming in your workplace, right? And you hear it and you go around asking people like, hey, who's humming? And everybody says, it's not me. I'm not humming. And in fact, you're the one who's humming. So you need to fix yourself. You know, that's exactly what gender inequality is like day to day. It's this background noise that just takes a toll on women. And so what we're really asking for is in those moments to be an ally, any one of those men could have turned to this leader and said, hey, you know, that's not cool. Or, hey, you know, don't do that. Don't pick on Michelle. You know, any one right, of them so could that's... have taken action to speak up. But they have to know what, what the barriers are, right? They have to acknowledge it in that moment. Right. The, what, the, the, uh, the anecdote that you just told about um, uh, being told to wash the dishes is something that probably every working woman can uh, relate to because that's happened about a thousand times or something like it to almost every working woman. But the key then is for, not just for the woman to defend herself, but for 
uh, one of the guys to recognize that it's wrong and to call it out, or for any colleague to recognize that it's wrong That's and right. call it out. It's, it's but the reason it's for right. men is because they're in positions of privilege, right? It's much easier for those who are sort of closer to the prototype of power to call it out, right? And I always say it's, it's very hard for people from marginalized groups to, to do that. I had a certain amount of privilege. I could have walked away from that employer, which is a privilege in of itself. So it was easier for me to do it. But I think for men, you have to call it out. And when you do that, it's incredibly powerful. You know, you're resetting the norms at work. You're resetting what are the acceptable behaviors in that team. Um, it's a very powerful thing to do. Let's talk about, and you, you, you went over this relatively quickly earlier, but let's, let's break out. You say there's these three phases of a women's career, and there's these different obstacles in each of the three phases. Let's just walk through that so that people understand um, wh where you're going with that. It's very interesting. So starting you know, with I the first phase, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I started researching this and the different barriers women encounter, I wrongly assumed that women followed the same sort of career path to men. And it wasn't until I looked at research that studied sort of women's career path and I found that actually women tend to follow sort of three distinct phases throughout their career. So when we start out, you know, it's called the idealistic achievement phase in research. And the reason is, is we're idealistic, right? We go into workplaces not knowing that actually they're not meritocracies, they're not going to function like school. And we believe that actually inequality might happen to some people, but it's not going to happen to us. And if it does happen to us, we alone can sort of overcome it, right? So it's, there's that belief based on what we've been told to expect. And as I said before, you know, what we find is not being prepared really leads to that drop-off in confidence and that internalization of a lot of the barriers. And that's just sort of that first phase, right, which is up until about the and point women... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You said that's a... Yeah, that's about age 24 to 35, I believe you said? That's, it's around that, right? And I hate giving sort of hard lines because it really does depend on your personal circumstances, but it's roughly that sort of phase, right? And you'll encounter some of those barriers we talked about early on, like the conformity bind, conditioned expectations, performance tax. You'll experience a lot of those then. But the important thing to remember as we sort of walk through women's careers is that, you know, the barriers don't just disappear. They can sort of reappear and show up at different points in your career. For example, you know, the conformity bind, you're most likely to confront that when you enter workplaces, but it also continues throughout your career. Just for ease, I've really tried to show typically when you might encounter a barrier. So once you've sort of experienced that first idealistic phase, um, then roughly at around age 35, and I believe it's to 45, around then you sort of enter the what is typically the manager uh, sort of motherhood phase, right, where you're either sort of approaching motherhood or at an age where society thinks you might be keen to approach it, um, and you're also most likely positioned to take on a manager role. And even if you don't choose to have children, you're likely to encounter a lot of the challenges associated with that phase. And this is really, you know, this perfect storm. It's called the endurance phase. And for good reason, because, you know, women have to endure work, all the barriers that have come before, but also new barriers as they try to lead. So like the negative gender norms I talked about with my boss during that tea towel. So that's really when that starts to happen. And also then, you know, things like the motherhood tax, 
things like you know the motherhood penalty um, even if you reduce your work hours the part-time penalty and then something we haven't even talked about which is sort of the mental and emotional load women carry from having to manage sort of all the activity in their households and their domestic sort of responsibilities, right, and, and children's schedules and all the sort of invisible load that women carry outside of work. So that phase is really difficult for women um, to sort of survive. And as I talk about in the book, if you do survive it, you sort of get to this final phase, which is known as the contribution phase. And I think, you know, Joanne, this is what makes women so remarkable, is once we've gone through all of that and women who do survive, they want to contribute. They want to make a difference. They want to make it easier for the next generation. And that's why that final phase is called the contribution phase. And I think what's amazing is women are still having to navigate all these barriers just to do their job, but they don't want to come to work and just do their job. You know, they want to make it easier for the next generation. And I think that's incredible. And I talk about how hard it is for them to do that because they have to really achieve the impossible by navigating all these barriers um, to do their job and to then try and make it easier and contribute um, to that next generation. So those are really the three phases for women. And I think it's important that leaders in particular understand how women's careers differ from men's in that way so they can support their development. There's a very important point in the, when we talk about that endurance phase in the middle, because so much of what we hear is this is when women are having children, families, they have elderly relatives to care for, um, and that it, they've got the pull of family. But there's so much research that shows us that women who choose not to marry and not to have children face that same kind of career gap as men in that same age group, right? So there's, there is a, um, that expectation that you're talking about um, is put on these women even though um, they aren't conforming to the stereotype of the, the woman with the babies at home and the, the elderly parents. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly challenging, you know, for women just simply nearing that age, right? I've been in loads of meetings with leaders where they'll make assumptions as part of their succession planning by saying things like, oh, she's likely to get married soon, so, you know, we probably shouldn't put her in that role, or she's likely to be thinking That's about That's a great children. point. Yeah, and so that, that is a fantastic so hard, point. Right? I have been in more I, I've been in more meetings than I can possibly count where someone will say, "Here's this great opportunity," and somebody else will say, um, you know, "Oh, Susan would be perfect for that." And someone will say, "Oh, you know what? Susan has a baby at home. She's not going to want to travel." Or I've heard, you know, Susan's husband has a great job. She's not going to want to like put in that many hours. I mean, every, there's all these assumptions that are made on behalf of women, and these opportunities that they would be great for uh, are are never even presented to them. So I, I, I do think you make this great point that you know, ask the woman. Don't make assumptions on her behalf. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, international assignments are a great one. You know, most people need international assignments to some degree to advance to sort of that CEO level, right? They need that exposure to offices around the globe. They need sort of the experience of different environments because that's how you learn. But men are much more likely to get those opportunities than women. And it's because we make these assumptions about, you know, women's capability. And I always say, you know, you can be penalized with all the motherhood penalties without actually even being a mother. 
Um, and so that's why it's really important that we start to unpack that. And, you know, those exposure opportunities are critical because um, without them, it's very easy for leaders to sort of lean on ambiguous things like she needs more time in her role or she lacks judgment as catchphrases for really, you know, preventing a woman from advancing when in reality she doesn't have access to those opportunities to have that exposure, to have that judgment in order to, you know, move up. And so it's really about how can we afford women the same career development opportunities that we're affording men and really invest in them and sort of understand what it is that as an organization we need to do to help women accommodate sort of their identities outside of work and importantly also men, right? Because increasingly men want to be at home with their kids and men want to be sort of involved fathers and talk about that. And so we need this on both sides. How do we, because this is the big question, how do we convince men that this actually is their issue. We know that young men say that they care a lot about family time, but when you're talking about the people who are in leadership, the Don Draper model, the white male, they see this as, wait a second, why should I give up the power I have to let in these other folks? It's going to take away opportunity from me. And there, I know there's a ton of research, and you have cited it as well, uh, showing us that there are, um, there's a real business imperative to do this, that companies that have gender balance are more successful, they're more innovative, uh, their earnings are better, their return on equity improves. There's a lot of this research, but when it comes down to the individual men who have those positions of power, what is the reason that will make them sort of open their eyes to understanding what the barriers are and why they should allow women, uh, you know, through the door as well? So I just want to acknowledge, you know, all the men who might be watching this, that to date a lot of the work in the diversity and inclusion space has not been um, inclusive to men. So we haven't been speaking to the barriers that men face which are numerous. So the, I think I've got about six of them that I identify in the book. So everything from, you know, silencing men at work, the mental and emotional load that men encounter and stress that men encounter, living up to the Don Draper ideal, the challenges men face, straying from the breadwinner image, um, and, you know, the associated costs with that, the silencing that happens in workplaces where men have to conform to this, like, you know, you saw with my example of my boss throwing that dish towel. Um, and so we don't really acknowledge the challenges inequality creates for men. You know, I'm not a fan of business cases. And the reason I say that is they're inherently misogynistic. You know, we don't have a business case for why we should have white male leaders, and yet we require for sort of every other area of difference. And But even with the business cases that clearly show that diverse teams, diverse organizations, more inclusive organizations, more inclusive leaders are just better across the board in terms of innovation, creativity, productivity, you know, revenue growth. Like, it's just better to have a diverse... Um, team and it makes such intuitive sense because your customers are not all the same, right? And so you need a diverse team to meet a sort of global marketplace. Even parking the business case, right? And even parking the barriers men face, one simple fact that I found through my research that I think, at least in the work I've done with men, really brings it home is that there's this assumption that the Don Draper ideal serves men. And it's something that we need to address, right? So there's this belief that, hey, you know, Don Draper got us here living up to that, so it must still serve us. And the reality is that it doesn't. You know, I worked with an organization very recently that's a global um, 
sort of financial services organization, and I had this question from a room full of white male leaders, and I had to say to them, look, not only does this not serve you today because you don't have the cognitive, behavioral, and um, sort of emotional diversity to be a very effective team because you're all thinking and acting in the same way, but actually, if you look at sort of, as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of the disruptive changes that are coming due to things like AI, robotics, you know, nanotechnology, the Internet of Things, you know, we're seeing a lot of at least 60% of jobs over the next three years, according to the World Economic Forum, are forecast to change. And so we're seeing a need for new and different types of skill sets. And when you look at those skill sets, it's things like persuasion, collaboration, you know, effectiveness in terms of being more inclusive and engaging in sort of behaviors that we typically are associate with women leaders, um, you know, much more what we call sort of transformational leadership that's more democratic, right, and, and collaborative. And so I, I actually researched this myself and asked 120 leaders, uh, men and women, in an organization, you know, what are the top five capabilities that are required in the future world of work? And it's things like, you know, achieving results through people, um, you know, collaboration, um, creativity, you know, leading inclusively. It's a lot of sort of the typical behaviors that the World Economic Forum cites. And I asked them, you know, out of those top five, what are, how many, you know, do women have today? And respondents said women have four out of the five top capabilities required in the future world of work, and both men and women, right? And both men and women said that men have one out of five. And the reason for that is Don Draper was designed back, you know, and I talk about in my book, in the 1950s when, you know, you had Ford Motor Company coming up with this ideal of what good looks like, right, in terms of leadership. And that, that model, that ideal, does not serve us today and it won't serve us, you know, in the future. And so men need this more than women do. Men need the freedom to engage in a broader range of, of behaviours. You know, something like the femininity stigma is another barrier men face when they engage in more empathy and, you know, sort of some of the softer skills that are associated with women. They're penalised because they're not living up to dawn. And so for me, this is really about, you know, for men to truly compete in the future world of work and to be inclusive leaders, they need this more than we do. So, Michelle, we are running out of time. If you could just perhaps end on, you know, if there's a, one takeaway here that you would like to make sure that people understand when they read your book, The Fix. It is as simple as this, that it's not you, it's your workplace. So get to know the barriers because the problem isn't you and we need to fix organizations so that they work for everyone. Michelle King, thank you so much for being here today. It is a pleasure speaking with you. The book is The Fix, and I wish you all the best. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.